Well, if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Colossians 3. We've been studying Colossians. We're going to be in 322 to 4, 1. Let's ask God to guide our time. Father God, uh, it is your inspired and errant word that we look at now. As James tells us, we don't want to hear the word and not do it. So we ask that you would impart your word into our heads and into our hearts, transform our lives. May we know it is good to be in your house. May we know it is good to take your word, secure it in our hearts, and live it out. Empower us by your spirit to live honoring lives for your glory and our betterment. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. In a rural Asian village, there were two Christ followers that were friends, Rinku and Mohan. And Rinku and Mohan decided to combine their money and buy a plot of land. The desire then was to farm that plot of land, and when the proceeds came in, they would split it to provide for themselves and their families. So they bought the land. But as it turns out, they had very different ideas. Rinku believed that he should stay inside And from sunup to sundown, he would pray that God would give a bountiful harvest. Mohan believed he needed to work the land. And so he would go out in the fields and work, and he would pray while he was working. And each day, Mohan would invite Renku, come with me, help help me, I need some help out in the fields. But Renku would say, no, my place is praying, your place is out in the fields, and I'll pray and you work. And Mohan said, I do pray while I work. Well, it became a little bit of a tension, as you can imagine. Well, the harvest came, and it was bumper crop. And Mohan harvested it all, and then he took it to market. And he sold it and made a very large amount of money. When he came back, he said to Renku, I've done all the work. I should get the lion's share of the money. And Renku said, no, no, no. It was bountiful because I prayed and God blessed my prayers. I should get the lion's share of the money. And they could not agree. And so they decided they would go to a wise Christ-following pastor. They would present both of their sides and they would ask the pastor what they should do. Whatever he said, they agreed to do. So they went to the pastor. They told him the story. And the pastor said, I'll tell you what I want you to do. I've got two bags here of rice, but inside the rice, there are thousands of little pebbles in both bags. Tonight, you are to separate the rice from the pebbles. What you bring back in the morning will help me make a decision on the product, on the money. They said, okay. So they both went home and one, Mohan, went through the rice piece by piece, separating out all of the rocks, and it was painstaking. It took him the entire night. Rinku stayed up all night as well, and he was on his knees praying, and he asked God to do what only God could do. In the morning, they both bought their bags, and the pastor opened Mahan's, and it it was wonderful. All the rocks were out. There were no rocks left. It was very satisfactory. Then he opened Rinku's bag and all the pebbles were still there. It was a sad lesson for Rinku to learn. He learned that day that God did perhaps give a bountiful harvest, both because of work and because 
of prayer. Now, I probably didn't need to finish the story. You knew where it was going, but it made the point that I wanted to make, and that is our work matters to God. What you and I do with our work really matters. God's watching us. God's listening. God's observing how you and I work. Today's text is about work. Now, if you scanned ahead and read ahead, you probably might push back at this point. You might say, well, I think today's text is about slavery. It's not about work. And you might have in your mind the United States prior to 1865. We fought the Civil War from 1861 to 1865, at which point slavery was officially ended in both the North and the South. And you may have in mind that what we have here is the re-slaving of individuals. Some have looked at this text and said, God doesn't care about slavery. That is not true. In fact, God does address an American type of slavery back when the Jews were under bondage in Egypt and God raised up Moses and he raised up Aaron to set his people free and God unleashed a number of miracles so the people could leave and head towards the promised land. That is a slavery very much akin to the evils that we saw in the United States prior to 1865. But what we have here is quite different. It's quite different than the 14th and 15th Amendments. Those were released in 1870 that allowed those of African descent who were male to vote. It's quite different than what we saw in the 19th Amendment. In 1920, when suffrage, the right to vote was given to women. This is very different than the Grandfather Act that the Supreme Court tossed out in 1915. The Grandfather Act was a way to refuse people the right to vote suffrage by saying you could only vote if your grandfather had voted. And this is quite different than the 24th Amendment, 1964, that ended the poll taxes. If you're familiar with the poll taxes, we read about them sometimes today. They were taxes in which almost every state in the union charged people to vote, thus holding back suffrage for certain people groups. This text isn't about any of that. This is about individuals who are bond servants in the Roman Empire, something quite akin, something, excuse me, not akin to what we read about in the Civil War. Let me pick up in our text. I want to read Colossians 3, 22 to 4, 1. Listen to God's word. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as to the Lord and not for men knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ, for the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. 
I want to say in the strongest of words, slavery in every way is evil. But again, I don't believe this text is about the slavery we envision in the United States. In fact, as you well know, slavery is still alive and well in our country and in our world. Experts suggest that upwards of 20,000 people in the U.S. are enslaved every single year. Many of them are immigrants. A lot of them are young girls who have fled their families and run away and end up in sex industries, often against their will. Worldwide, we are told that maybe 50 million individuals are enslaved. I would suggest the number is a great deal higher, maybe one or two billion for those who are in totalitarian socialistic countries are for all intents and purposes slaves. Slavery in every way is evil, but this text is not about that type of slavery. What we have here is the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was North Africa, most of Europe, a fair amount of Asia, including the Middle East. At the time of the Roman Empire in which Paul is writing, there is probably upwards of 60 million people in that empire. One to two million are Romans, the rest are bond servants. If you happen to live in a country that is overrun by Rome, if Rome's boot is on your throat, you are a bond servant. What exactly does that mean? That means that you might have more education than the average Roman. That was true for many. If you didn't, you were in menial labor. But for many bond servants, the most skilled white collar and blue collar workers in the Roman Empire were bond servants. They were doctors and lawyers and accountants. They were artisan and craftsmen and craftswomen and the like. They often bought their own homes. They were allowed fair market wages and they earned them. They had a little bit of fee in which they needed to pay to Rome because they were bond servants. But on their free time, they were free to do as they like. This is what actually makes the Apostle Paul so remarkable. He tells us in Acts 22 that he is a Roman citizen from Tarsus, which is in Turkey. He's a Jew, but he not only is a free individual, but he is a Roman citizen. He probably purchased both. We are actually told that the, actual, the average Roman bond servant purchased their entire freedom by age 30. More than half had done so. So most bond servants earned a living and then purchased the last part of their freedom and they were free to do as they desire. It is quite likely that Jesus was a bondservant, that all of his apostles, rather but Paul, who was abnormally born, was also bondservants. They were. Bondservant is what is in the text today. These are individuals who have a great deal of freedom. Because of that, many scholars look at today's text and they say we should not read it with the lens of American slavery, it's vile, it's evil, but we should read it with the lens of a bond servant in Rome, and actually it is more like an employer-employee relationship. And so as, as application to us, how we serve, how we work 
in our place of employment. Paul begins in verse 22. He says, bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Now we've already seen this phrase, obey in all things. We saw it last week. Children, obey your parents in everything, in all things. And you remember, we noted then, as we will note today, all things are all things that are moral and ethical. There is always higher law. There is always God's law. You remember Daniel in the Medo-Persian Empire. And the Medes and the Persians, they made some laws. He had a ruler that made a law that he could not, ki- he could not pray to anyone but the king for 30 days. And Daniel appeals to higher law. He prays three times a day. And he ends up being thrown into a lion's den. He knows, he knows that there is higher law than man's law. Doesn't Peter make this point? In Acts 5, 29, the authorities come to him and say, you may not proselytize. And what does Peter say? He says, judge for yourselves whether it is right to obey you or to obey God. We always obey God. So when we're at work, if our employer, our corporation, our business owner tells us to lie, we say no. Cheat, we say no. Steal, we say no. We will obey higher law. It may cost us a job. It may cost us advancement, but it's the right thing. We obey God rather than man. But whenever we are told to do X, Y, and Z, and it doesn't violate God's biblical law, moral or ethical, or even our personhood, when it doesn't violate those things, we do it and we do it with the right attitude because we are pleasing God more than we are pleasing man. God wants medical workers. He wants janitorial workers. He wants those in the insurance fields, those in factories, those in corporate USA. He wants us to work in such a way that we bring glory and honor to God. Whatever we do, we work heartily unto the Lord, not unto men. Some of you know the band Lover Boy. Yeah, you don't look like you do. Back in traditions, they all knew it. No. Well, Lover Boy, not my favorite band by any means, had a song, you've heard it, Everybody's Working for the Weekend. I think those are bad lyrics. And then there's a bumper sticker. I think it's cute, but it's bad lyrics or bad words. It says, I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. There ought to be more in our lives than working for the weekend. There ought to be more in our lives than working because we have bills to pay. Ultimately, you and I ought to work to bring glory and honor to the Lord. We work in such a way that we are salt and light To those who watch us, those who observe us, those who are around us, we have a higher calling in our life. We work for the Lord. Or verse 22, we fear the Lord. Verse 23, whatever you do, work heartily unto the Lord and not unto men. Have you ever seen Sagrada Familia Church? It is magnificent. It's in Barcelona. If you haven't seen it, you might want to just Google it. But it is a masterpiece. It's gothic 
And uh, it is an entire block. You can walk around all four sides. It is somewhere between 14 and 16 spires. It was started in 1882. It has never been finished. They still work on it today. There is not an inch of this building that is not fascinating. I mean, the art is extravagant. And there's an apocryphal story from it. I assume it's apocryphal. But a tourist came up to three masons. And he walked up to the first mason. And he said to that mason, what are you doing? And the mason said, well, I'm a mason. I'm earning a living. And he walked up to the second mason. He said, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm a mason. I'm chiseling a rock. And he walked up to the third mason. And he said, what are you doing? He said, I'm a mason. And I'm building a cathedral where people will worship God. Perspective matters. Shouldn't all three be true? Simultaneously? We're earning a living. We're using our craft. And we're working to God's glory. It really doesn't matter what profession you and I are in. Wherever God has planted us, you, I, we are called to be salt and light to impact where God has placed us. For a moment, I want you to fast forward to tomorrow morning, the dreaded Monday. It's Monday morning. And for some of you, you don't need alarm. You just pop out of bed. You can't wait to get to work. You're excited. You're going to be salt and light. Well done. But then there's some others. And the alarm goes off and you fumble and you hit snooze three times. And eventually you get yourself out of bed and you get in the shower and you look for zest because zest is supposed to, it doesn't work. And you just have no energy. You get out and you have two, make that three cups of coffee. Then you grab a daily bread and you quickly consume it and you say a little prayer and you get in the car and maybe you even listen to some Christian music on your way to the dreaded work. And then when you get there, you forget all about the daily bread and all about the prayer and all about the songs and all about the sermon the day before and you're just focused on work. And what have we done? We've compartmentalized our lives. We got our spiritual part of our lives and then we got the rest of our lives. And that's what God does not want in your life and mine. He wants us to understand that our work is an extension of our worship of God. Think of the Psalter. The Psalter is 150 Psalms. And I would argue that all of them teach us to praise God. You have the imprecatory Psalms. Those are the ones in which we say, God, get them. God, they need justice, your justice. Get them, God. But what are the imprecatory Psalms about? Well, taking my eyes off of getting them and putting them on God and worship. There's the lament Psalms, a lot of those. That's when we're suffering and we're hurting. And the Psalter doesn't ignore our hurt and our pain, but ultimately it tells us to take our eyes off of our situation and back on to God. That's actually true no matter what psalm you read. Every psalm is about taking our eyes off of our world, off of the creation, and looking back to the creator. That's what the Psalter does. 
Do you remember how it begins? Psalm 1, 1 and 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. That's what the Psalter is about. That's what the Psalter is kicking off. What are we to do? We are to meditate on the law. We are to meditate on the Lord. No matter where we are, it's all about God. We don't compartmentalize our lives. We got a little bit of Sunday morning and now we got the rest of the week. And this is about God and this is not. No wonder we have less satisfaction in our jobs because we don't view our jobs as about the Lord. We don't view our jobs as about salt and light. We don't view our jobs as an extension of our faith. But God wants better of us. He wants me to view my job not as I roll out of bed, I gotta go there again, but I get to go there. And yeah, I'm earning a paycheck, And yeah, I got to put up with some difficult situations, but I get to serve the Lord. And this is where he's planted me. And as long as he's planted me here, I get to live for Jesus. I get to be salt and light for Jesus wherever I am. Let me try and illustrate this. Maybe you're a homemaker. Envision managing the home as if Jesus is going to visit that night. Maybe you're a teacher, homeschool, public school, private school, virtual school, I don't care. Envision that one of your students is Jesus. How would you teach if Jesus were one of your students? Maybe you're a doctor, a nurse, a CNA, a technician. Envision that your patient is Jesus. I've experienced this. A few months ago, I had unexpected surgery And my surgeon actually attends Highland. And he prayed with me before surgery. I looked at my wife. I said, have you ever seen that? I mean, it was a powerful prayer. And I regularly have skin cancer. And my skin cancer doctor goes to Highland. And all she does is talk about Jesus as she's cutting holes in my arms and legs and and head. (laughs) You know, you don't want holes cut in you. But if you're going to have holes cut in you, it helps to talk about Jesus. It really does. Or maybe you're a businesswoman or a businessman. Think of the CEO of the company as Jesus. Or he's a stockholder and you're earning to increase his stocks. Or a retiree. Don't waste your life. We talked about this last week. Go golf, play cards, go travel, but invest in the next generation and the regeneration after that. Don't waste your life. You have more time, more freedom than you have ever had in your life. Use it. Thank you. I think my mom is in the audience. I appreciate that. Factory workers. You may have an exciting job, you may have a boring one, but someone on your right and someone on your left needs to know Jesus. Be salt and light for that individual. Maybe you're a student. Think through what it means to be a student with integrity. 
what it means in the locker room if you're on a sports team, how to live out your Christian worldview in spite of what other teammates might do. Live for Jesus. Maybe you work for the government. Wouldn't it be refreshing if all of our government workers said, you know, in my area is Jesus, so I've got to lead in such a way that it glorifies Jesus. Maybe you're a teenage employee. Man, you're going to arrive early. You're going to pour yourself into it. You are going to be the most honest, filled with integrity employee around. Maybe you're a repair woman or a repair man. Think of what you're repairing as belonging to Jesus and do it to the best of your ability. Maybe you're a truck driver and you can't stand these little cars that zoom in and out. Maybe one of them has Jesus. Wave with the whole hand, not just one finger. That would be good. Maybe you're a caregiver. Wow. That's an unbelievable job, isn't it? Someone who's caring for somebody who is really sick. The hours, they just don't end. And thank you for doing that kind of work. But think of that parent, that relative, that individual as someone who needs Jesus. Or maybe envision them as though they are Jesus. I wonder how Jesus would flip burgers or sell insurance. I think he would do it with great integrity. Think of what Jesus was. He was a tecton. A tecton is a carpenter. We often have in mind that he worked with wood. That would not likely be true. He's probably a stonemason. There's a lot more rock in Israel and the Middle East than there is wood. So he probably worked with stone. And this is how I envision it. I think if Jesus said he was going to be there at 8, he'd get there at 7.55. I think Jesus wouldn't need a contract. His yes would be yes and his no would be no. I think he would advance in his career, not on the backs of others, but because of hard work. I don't think he would gossip and slander. I think he would build people up. I think in addition to doing his work with excellence, he'd also be talking about his father. I think he would be praying for his co-workers and inviting them to come to know his father. I think that's what Jesus would do. And the text tells us that when we work, we work heartily unto the Lord, not unto men. We work out of fear that is awe of the Lord. And then in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Masters, treat your employees in such a way that your master will evaluate well. Our master is God. So maybe you're an owner. Maybe you're a supervisor. Maybe you're a leader. How would you want to be led? The golden rule applies at work. We ought to supervise in such a way that that's how we ought to desire to be supervised. That's how I would supervise you. That's what we ought to be thinking in our minds. That means probably fair or better than fair pay. That means that the benefits ought to be such that the worker is providing for their family. 
They get fair time off to build into their family that we keep in mind that they're just not an employee, but they have another life. This is what God is calling us to do. He doesn't want us to dichotomize our lives. I got my little church life and I got my work life and I got my recreation life. And I think the Lord would say, no, mix it all together, put it in the mixer. And then for all of it, all of it work heartily, live heartily, recreate heartily unto the Lord and not unto man. That's how he wants you, me, us to live. Let's pray. Father God, we pray that we would not compartmentalize our lives, but we would live all of our lives with an eye towards you, live all of our lives as salt and light, that we would honor you. Father, we want to live in such a way that you are at the forefront of our work, our play, our study, our free time, that time that has already been determined for us by others, all of it. May we live with an eye for you, an eye towards you, and an eye to telling others about you. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen.